Let's get encouraged and strengthened from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through, what are we at, 3 through 9. I'm going to pay a special attention to verses 6 through 9. We started a new sermon series in the epistle of Peter a couple weeks ago, and we said, you know, Peter's addressing Christians who are suffering, and they apparently they're going to be suffering a good deal more in the future. There are Christians that are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. They are new believers, brand-new believers probably, because this is the beginning of the whole thing we call Christianity. They had to be bewildered believers going through the sufferings that they had. I, I suspect that becoming a Christian had not been a walk in the park. Right? It had not been easy. What did we get ourselves into? Why are we... Where is God in all of this suffering? Why, did we put our hope in Jesus in vain? Didn't you say that we were going to inherit salvation? Where's the salvation stuff you talked about? They, they had to be bewildered. Um, where's God in this? Well, here's where God is at. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the gold of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's the end result of Christian suffering? You know, Buddhism teaches that basically your sufferings are an illusion. Karma teaches that your sufferings are deserved. Atheism teaches that your sufferings are utterly meaningless. Stoicism teaches that your sufferings are something that are merely to endure them, grin and bear it. Secularism, which we've got to say is the religion of our, our world today, secularism says that your sufferings are to be avoided at all costs. Medicate your sufferings, right? Drown them in alcohol, drown them in entertainment. Do everything in your power to avoid sufferings. What strikes me is how diametrically opposed Christianity is to like every single one of those points. It's truly a complete 180. According to the Christian message, your sufferings are real. They are, are not purposeless. They are not always deserved. They're not merely to be endured. They are to be embraced. And Peter says in this passage, I don't know if you caught it, but he says that through your sufferings, God can lead you into, quote, 
an inexpressible, glorious joy. Really? <laughs> like, I want that, please. I want the inexpressible, glorious joy thing. I want what he's got. How in the world can Peter promise something that big, so much? Like, is he a snake oil salesman? Is this really attainable for ordinary Christians like us? I think it is. How do we get the joy? There are three ways, three ideas uh, that I want to pass on to you this morning. Um, Ideas on how we get to that inexpressible, glorious joy in the middle of suffering. Number one. You, it's by comparison. You, you compare your sufferings to uh, the promises of the Bible. The, you compare your sufferings to a biblical perspective. I'll put it that way. Compare your sufferings to a biblical perspective. You know, the, I found this as I studied this week. You know, the Bible has a nasty habit of saying things that almost, it, it sounds to a suffering person like you're, you're trying to minimize what they're going through. You're, trying, you're trivializing what they're going through. A good example of this in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul is speaking to believers there in Corinth who are going through terrible affliction, and he says this. He says, We do not lose heart because our outer man, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all, com- all comparison. Did, did you ca- he just called their, their sufferings light and momentary. That, that is not how you begin you know, grief counseling. <laughs> like of all the insensitive male-brained things to say to a suffering person, you tell them that it's just it's light, light as a feather, <laughs> momentary, a blink of an eye. How can he do that? Why would he do that? Well, maybe it's just Paul. He's a little too alpha male. (laughs) He lacks the social skills. He lacks the tact that's necessary. But no, 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 no. You find Peter doing the exact same thing here in verse 6. He says, you suffer grief through all sorts of various trials, but it's just for a little while. No, the way that the, what they're, they're both doing, the, the intent for both of them, is you, you compare it to eternity. Remember, that is the, the first idea. You compare your sufferings to eternity. I mean, you and I are going to spend, think about it, billions and billions of years with Jesus Christ. I mean... Two years of suffering, that is momentary, isn't it? By comparison, I mean, even a decade of suffering, it's pretty short. Even a lifetime of suffering, it's momentary by comparison. Now, I realize, and I think I screwed up in the first service and and didn't properly couch this. I mean, you don't want to create a church of Job's friends, where you have these the most insensitive counselors who like it from them you walk in and you've lost your spouse of 50 years and the first thing you say is oh it's light and momentary <laughs> you, no i mean that's not the first word that needs to be out of your your mouth i mean all of us need to be taught to be slow to speak slow to reach conclusions gentle 
in long-suffering in our speech. But the thing is, is that if you never get around to telling them that this is, in fact, light and momentary, you've done your brother or sister a great disservice. You have. Paul does a similar type of thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans 8.18, again, he's writing to people who are going through excruciating pain, and he says that I consider the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever you're going through, Paul says, as bad as it may be, in comparison to the glory that's yet to reveal, it's a flea bite. It's less than a splinter. It's, it's an irritant. And I, I know, I know it doesn't feel that way. And again, you don't begin the crisis counseling session by talking that way to somebody. But again, if you don't get around to telling your, your brother and sister that truth, all we're trying to do is, is help them see the Bible's perspective of things. It's kind of like if you're on an airplane and you're sitting in the aisle of seats on the right-hand side of the airplane and you're looking out through one of those small circular windows across the aisle on the left-hand side of the plane. All you can see is just this little bit of blue. And what you're trying to do at the right time and in the right way is, is tell your friend, your suffering friend, your fellow Christian to stick their nose right up against the glass. To, to go over and you know, take the seat that's right, the window seat, and just stick their nose right up. Because right now, all they see is that little blue circle. But if, you could, if they could just stick their nose against the glass, right? the, the, the picture frame is, is so different, isn't it? So I, I just want this, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this when you are going through uh, all of the confusion that results of suffering, when you're like, I don't understand. Why, why God? Why Lord? Why, why am I having to do this? And when you're suffering through the guilt that you feel about, I know I shouldn't be thinking this way or feeling this way, you, compare it to eternity. Compare it to glory. Have you, okay, I'll finish this first point right here. Does anybody in your life have permission to come and tell you this truth? Does anybody in your life have permission to, to be insensitive almost, to like minimize and trivialize and downplay what you're, does, do you have anybody that you've said, please come and hit me with the left hook? of the truth and tell me when it feels unbearable and I can't handle it, please come and tell me that it's, it's light and momentary. That's one of the greatest gifts that God can give you is a brother and sister who's willing to do just that. Number two, I want, number two, I want you to see, you need to recognize God's purpose in suffering. One of his purposes is to create through your suffering deep, Durable, purified faith. Deep, durable, purified faith. And that's, uh, Peter, you know, you notice he goes through this image of the gold. How, if you want to get deep, durable, pure gold, unfortunately, you have to send it through the furnace. It's got to be burned. It's got to go through the crucible. It's got to have all of the dross and the impurities burned and 
melted away. And he says, how much more is that true of your faith? If you want to have deep, durable, um, tested through the fire faith, you, there's no other way to get it but then to, to go through the valley of the shadow of death. There's this lady by the name of Vanitha Rendall. She's going to be giving a talk at the Gospel Coalition's Women's Conference in June this year. And the, name of, the title of her talk is Trusting Jesus in the Midst of Physical Suffering. Hers is an interesting story. So about 15 years ago, she was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome. I never heard it before of it before, but it's a degenerative muscle condition where I guess every day you can do less and less and less for yourself. So the muscles atrophy. It's also a chronic pain condition. So every day you're just, you're suffering something terrible. She says, well, what my friends started to do for me, my friends started praying that my strength would be like the widow of Zarephath's oil and flour." Isn't that beautiful? You say, what is he talking about? First uh, Kings chapter 17. It's the story, you may remember, of this totally poor widow who, this woman who, she and her son are about to sit down at the table and eat their very last meal on earth. There's a terrible famine in Israel and there's no more food. She's, they're literally about to go to the oven, bake the last cake of bread. We're going to sit down, eat, and then die. When... The prophet Elijah shows up and says, feed me. (laughs) And she does. She takes the very last meal that she and her son are going to have, and she feeds the prophet Elijah. And Elijah, in return for her kindness, says, I will give you a blessing from the Lord. The blessing is that you, for the rest of this famine, will have barely enough to survive. So every, at, the end of, or at the beginning of every day, she goes to her cupboard and she sees that there's just enough flour and there's just enough oil for her to go on and then bake another bread. For the, she, there's barely, there's no, um, like every day, if, if God doesn't provide this, she and her son starve to death. Every day they barely get by. Every day there's no leftovers. At the end, she can't stockpile the pantry with additional foods. There isn't. There isn't enough left over, but, but every day she has barely enough. So this lady, Vanitha Rindal, she says, I love the, it's a beautiful story. It's an inspiring story. It's a, it's a moving story, and I hate it. <laughs> she says, I'm truly thankful, don't get me wrong, I'm truly thankful that my, my friends are praying that my strength would be like the oil and flour of the widow, but, but I don't like this role. I don't want to have just enough to meet my needs. I don't like living dependent and with all of the vulnerability, which is part of that level of dependency. She said, if I got to choose my role in the story, I would be, I would order a flask of oil that was always full, an overflowing jar of flour, a side of sugar and chocolate <laughs> and wine and cream puffs too. Not really, but none of us would willingly sign up for the role to play in that, you know, the play of the widow of the the widow of Zarephath. But the thing is, if you were to do a spiritual faith test on her the day before she went into post polio syndrome, and then you were to do it today, you would find that there's no comparison. This woman before 
I mean, she could barely, with her faith, bench press 20 pounds off of her chest. She couldn't even get the bar off of her chest, spiritually speaking. And today, this little woman with atrophying muscles is throwing up 45s. She's, she's pumped because that's what happens to your faith. Having to go through the suffering, the scarcity, that's what trials, you know, that's what they always do to us. If you want to, to travel in the way of deep, durable, pure, abiding, and strong faith, there is no other way that you could possibly do it. Um, one more thing I want to bring out in this in verse 8. There's this great expression of faith here. Verse 8 is the is kind of the essence of what faith is. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious choice. I mean, all, all that's really saying is that faith, faith is, be, is partly the ability to believe in somebody that you cannot see. I find it hard. Do you find it hard to believe in a Jesus? Cannot see? I find it hard to love a person I cannot see. But that's the very thing that I want, and that's the very thing God wants for me. It would transform our lives so much if we could believe that he was every bit as real and beside me as if I could see him with my visible eyes. If you and I could see him with that kind of, if that was a living reality to us every week, if we were that sure of Christ's presence with us, it would completely transform all of our lives. And that is the kind, that's the type of faith he wants to build in us. And there's only one way to get there. So that's number two. Number three. I want you to consider the praise, honor, and glory which results from our faith. And that's, I'm taking this from verse 7. Read with me, verse 7. These trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So here's the image. We're at the end of time. There we are. Jesus comes back. He, he's revealed. What is waiting at the end of time? Peter says, praise, honor, and glory. But it's a very ambiguous way of expressing it. And when you and I think of praise, honor, and glory when Jesus returns, we immediately think of the praise, honor, and glory we're going to give to Jesus when he returns. Right? Amen? But it's not, that's not what it says. It says, your faith will result in praise, honor, and glory. It's not that your faith will lead you to praise, honor, and glorify Jesus. The, the most startling idea in this whole passage, and I saw it originally, heard of it originally in a John Piper sermon years ago. Verse 7 is not talking about the praise, honor, and glory you're going to give to Christ. It is talking about the praise, honor, and glory you are going to receive from Christ. That's what's waiting you. When he is revealed, your faith, you were tested in the fire, genuinely proved, genuine proved true faith is going to result in, in God and God's angels and God's saints enveloping you in love and applause and acclaim. You're going to be enveloped in the acclaim of Jesus Christ at the end of time. Um, 
That's just hard. That's really hard to believe. Uh, I can't imagine, really. You could tell me that I would go on to win the Cy Young Award at the end of 2016, and I'd find that almost more believable than I would that Jesus Christ is going to applaud for me. Right? We'll just assume that it's true. Well, for the sake of argument, let's just, what would that, what would it mean for you and me to persevere in faith through sufferings if we knew the applause was coming? I saw a perfect example of this this summer at Royal Family Kids Camp where you got these foster kids who never in their life has anybody really celebrated them. So kind of the whole week, the desire, the goal of the whole week is to shower them with praise, honor, and glory. Effectively, they walk off the bus, and we've got our signs there for our campers, and we're just screaming as hard as we can, clapping our hands as hard as we can. Uh, one of the nights, they get their own personalized blanket, and as the kid's being enfolded in his blanket, we're all, you know, cheering for him. One of the activities, and I know you all have seen this in Sunday school, but the puppet comes along, Kid Royale, and he... He ends up finding, catches them doing something good. He finds some act of kindness. And Kid Royal presents an award on them. And everybody stands up and, and claps and yells. And um, It's interesting to watch these kids change. Initially, they're just totally embarrassed. And they don't know what to think about it. Which is probably exactly how I would feel. And then they start to warm up to this whole praise, honor, and glory thing. <laughs> and eventually, by the end of the week, these kids, they're up there dancing and taking a bow and people are giving them an applause. Imagine what that would be like to hear the applause of Christ and his angels over your tested faith. Um, I mean, all, those of us who are sports fans, like we fantasize of being Ian Johnson in the Fiesta Bowl, taking the handoff and Statue left to the house, throwing the football up, and the whole 70,000 people exploding in, uh, in, in joyful acclamation. Interestingly enough, my one claim to fame is that Ian Johnson lives in my neighborhood. And I saw him at the community center yesterday. We almost even said hi to each other. If you've ever gone to a really big sporting event, an outdoor, even a Boise State game, before kickoff, they start doing the Boise State. You you start to actually hear the applause from, what, blocks away? Maybe even miles away. What Peter's trying to do is to tell you to listen to the applause right now. Right now. You were tested Genuine, genuinely proven faith will result in praise, honor, and glory for you on the day that Jesus Christ is revealed. I just want you to see that. I, I mean, Peter is not writing to super Christians. He is not writing to bishops and pastors. He says, I'm writing to basically all you normal Christians living in the province of Asia that all of you can hear it. All of you can have it. All the, he's not saying that this is like some special uh, dispensation for the, the select few. He's saying all of you, if, if you frame it this way, can experience an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you will receive the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen.